Romans chapter 8, verses 5 through 8. Now for a second time. Romans chapter 8, verses 5 through 8, which we uh, began two weeks ago. And, and I thank the elders again for preaching for me last week, uh, which was uh, a week of recovery from shoulder surgery. Uh, but let us take up our theme again, Romans chapter 8, verses 5 through 8. Hear God's word. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And let us pray together. Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you again for your word, and we ask you that now through the preaching of your word, having read it, that it might be greatly illumined uh, by your spirit. Holy Spirit, use the weakness of preaching this weak and contemptible instrument in the eyes of the world and yet mighty in the hands of God and in the eyes and to the faith of the faithful. Build us up, we humbly pray, by your mighty word, we ask you in Jesus' name, amen. Well, last time uh, we began to consider uh, the contrast which exists between, uh, Paul uh, describes two classes of people, those who live according to the flesh and those who live according to the spirit. Uh, And to this end, he introduces it at the end of verse four, and then he amplifies it in verses five through eight to the end that we might see those in whom the righteousness of the law is being fulfilled. In whom? Well, Paul says at the end of verse three, verse four, those who uh, who walk or live according to the spirit and not according to the flesh. And having said that, he then, as I say, amplifies the contrast. What is true of each? And so it is a basic contrast between uh, the believer and the unbeliever, each who walk or live after a certain manner, Paul says. But what is especially true uh, of each And this is what we have to grasp in particular, is that uh, each has a certain mind, each has a certain uh, inner thought life. And that is what sets them off against each other, as Paul says. It isn't so much that they one lives according to the flesh, the other lives according uh, to the spirit, but rather what is true of each as a result of that. And what is true of each as a result of that is put like this. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit, the things of the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. It's it's not there, but uh, it's it's assumed. And so what ultimately explains the difference between the believer and the unbeliever, those in whom the righteousness of the laws is being fulfilled and those in whom it isn't, is the mind which each possess. And that's what you have to look at even before you look at the life. And ultimately, that is what explains the life as well. It's what it what occurs in the mind. And so the emphasis is upon the thought life of man as revealing his true self as a man thinks. So he is the world of his thoughts and emotions and desires, the things he thinks about, the things he wants to do, the things he delights in and so forth. And in this, we see a total, we see an absolute contrast between these two people. And even in ourselves, uh, pre-Christ, before we were saved and after we were saved. What happened when we were saved, and I hope to say this later, is that we were given a new mind. 
and everything that entails. Well, last time the emphasis was on the unbeliever, and we only began to consider the believer. Very briefly, uh, recapping the unbeliever, what is said there, such a mind for the unbeliever is death, Paul says, verse 6. It's a kind of spiritual death. It doesn't lead to death. It does, but that isn't the emphasis here. It is death. The man is dead. He has nothing of the life of God in him, nothing of the Holy Spirit. And this is because Paul says his mind is enmity. And again, throughout those verses, do you notice the sustained emphasis on the mind? The spiritual mind is death. Why? That mind is enmity to God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can it be. This is what characterizes the carnally minded man. Notice I didn't say the carnal man, I said the carnally minded man. And thus Paul says, to conclude in verse 8, so then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. There is the the basic picture of the unbeliever. But on the other hand, there are those who walk according to the Spirit and who as a result of this set their minds on the things of the Spirit. And so they are, we could say, spiritually minded in contrast to the carnally minded unbeliever. The believer is someone who's spiritually minded. And uh, I hope to read a few quotes to you today from John Owen's spiritual mindedness based on Romans chapter eight, uh, verse six. In another place, Paul says that a believer is someone in first Corinthians chapter two, verse 16, uh, a believer is someone who has the mind of Christ in contrast to the natural mind. The natural mind knows nothing of of God. The renewed mind is conformed after the mind of Christ, Paul says. So let us see that the characteristic feature of the new man in Christ, which has been our theme ever since chapter six and really chapter five. The believer in whom Paul says, chapter eight, verse one, there is now no condemnation or the believer in whom uh, Paul says, chapter eight, verse four, the righteous requirement of the law is being fulfilled. The most characteristic uh, feature about him in in contrast to the old man, the unbeliever, is that he minds the thing the things of the spirit and because he minds the things of the spirit or sets his mind on the things of the spirit. It is no longer true of him that he cannot please God, as in the case of those who live according to the flesh. You see, Paul doesn't say it, but again, he assumes it. those who live according to the flesh and who mind the things of the flesh, they cannot please God. That is fundamentally the problem of the unbeliever. But set in contrast to the unbeliever is the believer who minds the things of the spirit and who can please God and who does please God. Both because he is in Christ. But also because as a result of his being in Christ, he has been made a good tree out of which brings good fruit. God looks upon the lives of his people and he is pleased. The believer is able to please God. The believer pleases God. God is pleased with the believer. Do you understand why that difference is so crucial to grasp? The difference between the unbeliever and the believer. Well, look at it once more, as I've been saying, from the standpoint of God himself. What is it that God thinks? The difference between these two people is the difference between those who cannot please God and those who can. And there is nothing that ought to concern us more than this, simply whether we are able to please God or, again, to turn the the object around or the subject around, whether God is pleased with us. 
In other words, to use the language of chapter 8, verse 14, who are the true sons of God? Who are those who are really saved? In whom there is now no condemnation, not now, not forever. Those in whom God is eternally pleased and will never be displeased. And is there anything more important than knowing whether that is true of yourself, whether you are in Christ? Well, we are again confronted with the issue of assurance, which is the great theme of chapter 8. And in particular, the second kind of assurance. The first kind, you remember, is what we believe about God. What the flesh could not do, God did, verse 3. But that's only the first kind. There's also a second kind which looks at itself and says something like this. I know that I can please God and that God is pleased with me. I am sure of this because... And this is the logic of the verses which are before us. I am persuaded that I am a Christian and that God is pleased with me because I no longer walk according to the flesh, but I'm now walking according to the, to the spirit. In other words, my testimony about myself is that I am a Christian and everything about me from my inner thought life to the way that I live tells me that this is so. And thus I conclude about myself that I am in Christ and that therefore I must be safe. And as you remember, as we go on with Romans 8, we'll find that that isn't quite enough. You still need the testimony of the Holy Spirit to add his testimony to yours. And so you conclude about yourself as you should. If you are a believer, I'm a believer. I'm persuaded of this. But added to that is this third kind where we find the spirit coming along uh, in Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 17 and testifying along with our spirits that we are indeed the sons of God. Well, my interest in this second sermon on these verses, verses 5 through 8 of chapter 8, is what is true of the spiritual mind. The, The same interest that you find in Owen's work. In order that we who are spiritually minded might enjoy the kind of assurance that Paul presents in this passage, Romans chapter 8, especially at the end. I am persuaded, he says, that nothing can separate me from the love of God. That's where we're heading. That's what this all leads to. And what is it that persuades him of this? Well, one of the things that persuades him is that he knows that he's in Christ and that if he's in Christ, he's eternally safe and that God is eternally pleased with him. And know that you might have the same conviction, the same invincible assurance so that you could say, along with Paul, I am persuaded. Well, we began to consider this last time. But now with the benefit of another sermon, uh, let us take our time in considering what is true of the spiritual mind or the mind of the spiritual, the spiritual person. And uh, as a first point. Let us consider the spiritual mind in contrast to the carnal mind. Again, here is the fundamental contrast. It is the mind. John Owen says. Spiritual mindedness is the chief characteristic that distinguishes a believer from all unregenerate people. And certainly that's what Paul is saying here as well. The primary thing that distinguishes these two types of people, uh, if you will, to put it in its most basic form, is what they think about. What they set their minds on. What they set their hearts on. But what is meant by the spiritual mind? Well, again, I borrow from Owen when he says it is the mind renewed by the Holy Spirit. And so it is the mind of the believer who's been born again, the new mind of the new man patterned after the mind of Christ. And so Paul says, you have the mind of Christ even. And this is what we must understand about the new man in Christ. 
It's how he ever came to walk in this new way and to think in this new way. If we understand anything about uh, the old mind, the old mind and the old man, it should be clear to us that uh, it isn't as though the, the carnally minded unbeliever simply decides, you know, I'm going to be a believer. I want to be a believer now. I want to now set my mind on the things of God. Well, to think that is to ignore entirely Paul's description of the of the man in flesh. The fundamental uh, problem of the man in the flesh is that he lacks the ability to change. He is unable to think the things of God. He's unable to please God, Paul says. He suffers uh, from what the, the theologians call total inability. You may have heard of total depravity. We'll add total inability to that list. He is totally unable to be spiritual. And so what brings about this change in a man who is carnally minded? Remember, everyone who is spiritually minded was at some time carnally minded. And the answer is supplied throughout Romans chapter 8. The answer is the influence and the power and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It is the work of God in the life of man. It's the Holy Spirit who changes you. It's the Holy Spirit who takes up his residence in you and makes you new. So much Paul says in verse 9. But you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you, if you're a believer, the spirit is dwelling in you and he has renewed you and he is renewing you. So much so that he's given you a new mind. He's given you a new life. Or as Paul says in Romans chapter uh, six, verse four, he has enabled you by uniting you to Christ to walk in newness of life. So the emphasis is upon what is new as a result Of the Holy Spirit taking up his residence in you and changing you entirely. And we need to explore this new faculty, the new mind in Christ. It's something altogether new, something different, Paul says. Could anything be more different than these two things, the carnal and the spiritual mind? One is at enmity with God. The other is set on pleasing God and God is pleased with him. And we are helped immensely in understanding this new faculty in contrast to the old by what the apostle says in first Corinthians chapter two. This is perhaps the most important statement that you will find uh, in scripture on this subject, aside from what is said in Romans chapter eight. In verses six through 16, Paul is telling the Corinthians why he did not preach in persuasive words of human wisdom. Verse four, that's the language of verse four. I didn't come preaching uh, the wisdom of men. Or in the, uh, uh, the eloquence of the philosophers, I came simply preaching uh, the simple cross to you in a simple spiritual manner so that your faith would rest not on the wisdom of God, but uh, or, excuse me, the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. But there was an important reason beyond that that Paul elaborates upon in verses 6 through 16. Simply that he did not preach in persuasive words of human wisdom. He didn't try to make his preaching like the teaching of the world for this reason, because the wisdom of God is not the wisdom of this world. The two things are set at odds. They're totally different. He says as much in chapter one, verse twenty five. He says the foolishness of God is wiser than man and the weakness of God is stronger than man. But here is the real trouble, Paul says, as he goes on. The reason he didn't preach 
in the wisdom of the world or in the eloquence of the wise. He says that the carnally minded man, the natural man, the man who is not in Christ, lacks the spiritual faculty to comprehend the things of God. This is how he puts it. Verse 10. But God has revealed them to us through his spirit for the spirit searches all things. Yes, the deep things of God. And so the subject is the things of God. That's what Paul was preaching. Why couldn't the unbeliever understand them? Well, he says this. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. And then here's the key, verse 14. But the natural man does not receive the the things of the spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them. Because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things. What Paul is saying is that you can preach to the unbeliever all you like, but nothing will happen. Because the real trouble with the natural man is that he cannot understand. He cannot comprehend the gospel so long as he is a natural man and an unspiritual man. And that is, by the way, going back to what he says about his preaching in verses one through five, why there is no use in trying to speak to the unbeliever on his own terms and in his own language. You still won't get through. You can't present spiritual truths in a worldly fashion. You can only present spiritual truths in a spiritual fashion to spiritual persons. And the only hope you have for the unbeliever in doing so is that God might, through the preaching Renew his mind, make him new, give him this new faculty by which he is able to comprehend and he is able to receive now the things of God. But there's no other way to make him understand. If he is to understand, he's got to get a new mind from God, the Holy Spirit. For as Paul says once more, spiritual truths can only be discerned by spiritual persons. Only they have the faculty, which is the mind by which they are able To comprehend and to understand the things of God revealed by the Spirit through the preaching. And you won't succeed in building up spiritual persons except by spiritual truths presented in a spiritual fashion. This is something uh, that Martin Lloyd-Jones speaks about in his sermon one of his sermons on these passage, uh, these verses. He gives an illustration, uh, as does John Owen. I want to I want to share with you these two uh, these two quotes. Now I've listened to enough uh, sermons of Lloyd Jones to know that he gives this illustration often. Uh, it's a it's a wonderful way of demonstrating the difference between the spiritual mind and the carnal mind. It is not a question of intelligence. Let us see. The carnal mind is capable of theologizing with the best of them, but it is the ability to mind the things of the spirit that only the Christian has. This is how he tells the story. He says, uh, and I'll I'll skip around a bit. I don't want to read the full page. He says, there's a well-known story which seems to me to supply the perfect illustration of this point. It concerns two great men, William Wilberforce, the leader uh, in, in the movement for the abolition of slavery, and William Pitt, the younger, one time prime minister of Britain, they were both brilliant men. They were both politicians and they were they were great friends. Uh, and, and just to summarize, so I don't keep reading, uh, Wilberforce invited him to church to hear the preaching of Richard Richard Cecil, which uh, apparently was a great preacher in that day. 
Well, at long last, uh, Lloyd-Jones says, Pitt agreed to go and to hear Cecil preach. Wilberforce was delighted, he said, and they went uh, to the service. Cecil was at his best, preaching in his most spiritual and elevated and exalted manner. Wilberforce was enjoying himself and feeling lifted up into the very heavens. He could not imagine anything better, anything more enjoyable, anything more wonderful. And he was wondering what was happening to his friend William Pitt, the prime minister. Well, he was not long left in a state of uncertainty as to what had been happening, because before they were even out of the building, Pitt turned to Wilberforce and said, You know, Wilberforce, I have not the slightest idea what that man was talking about. And he hadn't, of course, Lloyd-Jones says. As a man can be tone deaf to music, all who are not Christians are tone deaf to the spiritual. That which was ravishing the mind and the heart of Wilberforce conveying, uh, conveyed nothing to Pitt. He was bored. He could not follow it. He could not understand it. He did not know what it was about. And so Lloyd-Jones quotes 1 Corinthians 2.14, The natural man receives not the spirit of God and so forth. Richard Cecil, he says, might as well have been preaching to a dead man. Well, just to go on with the quote, I think it's very helpful, uh, and this is a segue to it. Owen will say, uh, Lloyd-Jones describes then in the context of worship, the experience of these two men. They hear the same sermon, but their experience is entirely different. He says there are such people. They come to a place of worship. They listen to things that ravish the hearts of believers, but they see nothing at all. There are many such people in the churches now, as there always have been. They, they, they want uh, whist drives and dances, entertainments and socials, and to meet uh, another, one another socially. That's because they're not alive to spiritual things. You see, they're looking for everything else in a worship service uh, that might appeal to what is natural in them because they have no faculty or ability to enjoy or to comprehend that which is spiritual. And can we not say that the church today is obliging, is it not? It is appealing to everything that is carnal in man and nothing that is spiritual. And so often we who are spiritually minded, at least in our past Christian lives, uh, would go into such services and say, there was nothing there for me. There was nothing in that service for the believer. And did you ever realize that was by design? John Owen says this in Spiritual Mindedness, and he, he speaks of the chapters entitled, The Unregenerate's Delight in Religious Worship. He says, two persons may both attend the same service of worship, and both may greatly enjoy it, but for vastly different reasons. He says, both hear the, word, the same word preached. One enjoys the sermon because of the fine oratory displayed, but the other enjoys the sermon because of the spiritual truth being expounded and taught. One man's flesh was gratified, the other man, the inner man, the spirit. And so he goes on. This is why you would, you would have thought he wrote this today, but actually he was speaking of the Anglican church in his own day. He says, this is why the reason why the church fell into apostasy Seeking to keep up the appearance of godliness and love of spiritual things, men introduced worldly, fleshly attractions into evangelical worship. Instead of worship being spiritual and according to truth, it became outwardly attractive to the unregenerate person and inevitably grew more and more pompous and ceremonial. If all the outward trappings were stripped away, leaving only that which was spiritual and true, the unregenerate would have nothing to attract them to religious worship. And instead of delighting in it, they would find it boring and something only to be endured rather than to be enjoyed. But this would be of great advantage to the spiritual mind, 
which finds all the outward trappings of worship invented by men a distraction rather than a help. Well, you see, in many ways, that's the ultimate test of the church. Whom are we appealing to? Are we appealing to those who are carnally minded or those who are spiritually minded? And Owen is saying, what happens as I think... We've done a pretty good job. I won't say we've done a great job, but a pretty good job in the OPC of stripping away all the outward trappings. Is there anything left for the unregenerate man? I hope not. I hope that everything in the service is, 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 is geared toward feeding the inner man, feeding the faith of the inner man, not gratifying the flesh of the believer or worse, the unbeliever. And equally, that might say something to you who sit in the service and you ask yourself, what is it that I'm looking for and what is it that gratifies me? And if I do find, did you notice both men using the word uh, that the unbeliever will find worship to be boring, something to be endured? If you find that that is true, you might ask why that is the case. Now, I find worship that appeals to the outer man, the most boring, uh, intolerable thing in the world. But if I find myself in what I have to say is a spiritual worship service and I am still bored, I have to ask myself, I have to examine myself, what is it that I'm really looking for? What is it that I am hoping that the pastor and the session and the church would appeal to? Spiritual truths for spiritual persons or carnal filth for carnal minds? Well, let me go on. What is it that the spiritual mind minds? What is it that the spiritual mind sets its mind on? The spiritual, uh, those who walk according to the spirit, set their minds on the things of the spirit. Well, what are those things? Well, here, let me just emphasize again. And this is something that you will find, uh, especially if you ever uh, take the trouble to read this book that Owen uh, emphasizes again and again. It is the element of delight. The fact that not only is there a new faculty of understanding, but that there is enjoyment such as we saw in the case of Wilberforce, it was not just that he could comprehend what was being said when his brilliant friend could not. It was that he delighted in what he heard. He enjoyed listening to the sermon. He would rather be nowhere else. And this is the reason, Owen says, and this is the reason I say, that the spiritual mind minds the things of the spirit. It's not just that we're able to, it's that we love to. It's that now we have a heart to do it. We love the things of God. There is nothing we'd rather talk about. There's nothing we'd rather think about. There's no place we'd rather be than listening to a sermon on spiritual subjects. The mind is full of these things because it loves them and it is growing in them constantly by a constant meditation on them. The spiritual mind loves, desires and delights in the things of God. But what are they? Well, uh, many lists have been offered, but let me just offer my own. The first thing is uh, about the spiritual mind is his attitude towards sin is changed completely. You have to begin there. Now, I'm not saying that the spiritual mind is is meditating upon sin. Don't ever do that. You'll find Owen saying that that's a dangerous game. Sin is not a proper object for meditation. No, the whole point is that you cease to think about it. You cease to want to do it. Your attitude about sin is different. And if you do think about it. Whether your own sin or the sins of others, your heart is set against it. What you really find as a result of this great change in you wrought by the Holy Spirit is not only that you don't want to sin anymore, but that you hate sin. 
And you even find with David that your eyes shed streams of water because others do not keep the law of God. And so that's the first thing. It's your attitude towards sin. But then as a corollary to that, and as something positive, your attitude toward the commandments has changed. As I said earlier in the service, the Ten Commandments. Suddenly, as a result of the work of God in you by his spirit, you have a new and sudden and growing interest in the law of God, which you never had before. Now the thing that you want to discover is what a life that is pleasing to God looks like. Not one which you imagine yourself or define yourself, but one which God defines. He has saved you. He has redeemed you. He's bought you with a price. Here I'm preaching the evening sermon in advance. Now you want to know, what does he want from me? What is the kind of life that he describes as pleasing to him? There's this newfound interest in obedience. Another way to put this is to quote Jesus, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes, when he describes those as blessed who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You see, it's not a theoretical interest. It is a desire of the heart, a longing which cannot be satisfied until it until it uh, is full of it, of the thing which it seeks, which is the righteousness of the kingdom of God. He wants to live a life which is pleasing to God. In other words, another way to put this is that he has a new interest in the whole subject of Christian living. He loves to read books about this. He loves to talk about it. He loves to think about it. Now, what is it that is amiss in my life? What is it that I'm doing well? Where are the areas of growth? How is it that I might grow in grace and so on and so forth? Well, let me give you a third point, and that is the believer's interest in the truth. Now, again, without quoting Owen, I would I would say that Owen makes a great deal to do about this. The trouble with the unbeliever, he says, is not that they have no thoughts of God or Jesus or heaven. In fact, it's common in certain days. I don't think it's true in our day, but it would have been true in Owen's day that the unbeliever would have thought a great deal about Jesus, about God and about heaven, and perhaps even spoke on these subjects, perhaps even wrote on such such subjects. That is not the trouble with the unbeliever. The trouble with the unbeliever is that his thoughts are false. He conceives of a false God in his mind and a false Jesus and a false heaven. He imagines what he likes and so he fashions them as he pleases, not as they really are. And so I say again, it's not that he never thinks of these things, it's that his thoughts are false. But the renewed mind, in contrast, considers such things as they really are. A true Christ, a true God, a true heaven. He has a true conception of spiritual truths, for God has revealed them to him. He is able to comprehend the things of God. For the spirit of God through the preaching and through scripture has revealed them to him. And now he stores such things up in his heart. Things as they really are. And for this reason as a fourth point. He's taken up with spiritual exercises. Not as mere duty but as delight. And so the, th- the thing that you'll find is true of uh, this man. Is that he enjoys to do such things. He likes to pray. He doesn't pray because it is his duty. But he prays because he enjoys it. He really enjoys Spending time with God. He enjoys listening to sermons, not just on Sunday, but throughout the week. I've been telling you that's a growing practice of mine. Not as though to ever supplant uh, the local church, but, but in addition to it. You know, I'm driving around town. Should I be listening to the radio? Might, might I listen to a sermon instead? The spiritual man loves to read spiritual works. Why? What is the benefit of it? Well, is it not benefit enough simply that he delights to do so? He finds great pleasure and enjoyment. 
and that his mind as a result is full of the things of God. He's growing in the knowledge of God. Let me stress the next thing, number five. It's his whole view of Jesus Christ. You remember what Jesus asked Peter? Who do men say that I am? And here we see the third point confirmed. Men had all sorts of ideas about Jesus. Some say this, some say that. And the same thing is true today. Man has all kinds of ideas and opinions about Jesus. But the greatest thing that you'll find is true of the believer whose mind is renewed is that he has a true conception of Jesus Christ. He knows him. He knows who he is. And here is the testimony of the Holy Spirit himself concerning Jesus, that he is the son of God. He is Lord. And no man says Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Number six, he comprehends God's purpose towards him. This is one of the great points of this great chapter, Romans chapter eight. Paul is speaking of not only what is true of us now, but what will be true of us as a result. Not only has God predestined you as he foreknew you, but he has justified you and you can be certain that he has and he will glorify you. Paul in Romans chapter eight and then Romans nine through eleven is looking at uh, the, the, the full scope insofar as a man is able to do of the of God's purpose, purpose with respect to the elect and even with respect to the uh, to the reprobate. And the believer is interested in this. He wants to know uh, not just about his own puny circumstances, but he wants to comprehend something of the greatness of God's purpose towards uh, the elect and the cosmos and so forth. His plan for the whole of the world that he has created. The spiritual mind is full of this. He delights to hear these things. These are the things which fill him with wonder and delight. And which ultimately, as we will see, assure him of his salvation. The reason I'm sure, Paul says, is because I understand the purpose of God with respect to believers. I know that those whom he justified, he will also glorify. Yes, surely. And that therefore nothing can ever separate me from God in heaven. Not even my own sin, not death, not anything. And this is also, as Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, which, uh, that which fills his mind with, uh, with, with, with peace. And frees him from worry. Finally, the spiritual mind thinks most of the eternal and the spiritual, not the temporal and the material. This is the the essence of spiritual thinking. It is, in a word, the exercise of faith. For as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18, we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are unseen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Now, that is what the spiritual mind minds, not what it can see, but what it believes and comprehends by faith, the eternal God, heaven and so forth. For Paul says in verse seven of chapter five, we walk by faith and not by sight. Or as he says in Colossians chapter three, if then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. I hope you, you comprehend something of my meaning and what Paul is saying. It's, it's what you think about. It's the things not only that fill your mind, but which fill your mind with wonder and delight. Do you like to think about Christ in heaven? Did you ever consider that you were seated there with him now and that one day you will be revealed with him in glory? Are you setting your mind on those things or are you still setting your minds on the things of the earth? Well, let me close with this point. And that is 
why it is that the believer so often fails to do this. Why the spiritually minded believer can sometimes, or let us even say, very often becomes carnally minded. His thoughts are not full of the things of Christ in heaven and holiness and so on. His mind is full of the cares and the worries and the pleasures of this life. Let us be honest, all of us. Sometimes we believers are not as spiritually minded as we should be. And it is possible even for the believer who walks according to the spirit to set his mind on earthly things. Now, I think the best illustration of this is Matthew chapter 16. And you can hardly preach a sermon on spiritual mindedness without quoting Matthew chapter 16. Uh, I've, I've referred to it already. Jesus says uh, to Peter, who do men say that I am? And there were all these false opinions of Christ, but only Peter got it right. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus replies, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Peter had wonderfully comprehended the divinity and the person of Jesus Christ. You are the son of the living God. Here was a true spiritual apprehension of the identity of Jesus. Flesh and blood could never see such things nor comprehend it. For no one can confess that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Peter was animated by the Holy Spirit to exercise such faith in Jesus in a time that others could not. And yet, if you go on with the story, and I wonder if your mind's already gone there, do you remember how quickly his, his mind returned to this earth, even on a spiritual subject? No longer the identity of Christ, but the mission of Christ. Jesus says that the Son of Man must be betrayed, even as it was said uh, that he must, handed into the, the hands of sinners, betrayed, uh, crucified, and killed. Peter says, far be it from you, Lord, to do that. May it never be. And Jesus rebukes him. Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. The spiritual mind had turned its focus away to the things of men. And how quickly he did so. One minute, he was setting his, minds, his mind on the things of God. In the next, he was setting his mind on the things of men. I don't think anything in all of the Bible illustrates so well our capacity and our tendency uh, to do this than Peter here. And so I'm saying this is common. And I know that you know this. Let me give another example. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He has just told uh, these men uh, that he is speaking to them as spiritual men, not carnal men. Having described the, 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 the spiritual mind in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and 1 Corinthians 3, he says this. But I could not speak to you as spiritual people, but as carnal people, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk, not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it. And even now you're still not able, for you are still carnal. For where there are, there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal, behaving like mere men? You see, Paul has just described the difference. The believer is able to comprehend the things of God. And yet he says, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't give it to you, not in full, because you couldn't bear it. You were still thinking like men. You see, he just said in the prior verse, you have the mind of Christ. And yet that's not how they were acting. They were acting like they were still carnal, Paul says, babes in Christ. Do you see how both things can be true? I know this is sometimes debated. And so let me try to put this as carefully as I can. The question is, can the Christian be carnal? My answer is yes. A man can be spiritual and yet carnal. Paul says as much. 
And his carnality is revealed in his thinking. Like Peter, he begins to mind the things of men and not the things of God. And yet, we can also say that the reverse is never true. The carnal man can never be spiritual. For he has no faculty, no capacity for spiritual thoughts. But it is true that the spiritual man can be carnal at times. And the reason is that even though it is never true to say of the believer that he is walking according to the flesh, it is true to say that he still has the flesh and that the flesh as a result is always asserting itself and seeking prominence. And there are times in which in the Christian life the flesh succeeds. It succeeds in dragging us down and filling our minds with carnal thoughts. Like Peter. Well, let me suggest as I close a remedy for this, which is twofold. One, see the contradiction. Do you understand or or did you realize what Peter, uh, what, what Jesus did to Peter? He didn't say, oh, Peter, you disappoint me. He rebuked him. He dealt with him as a man who was acting a fool. He said, Peter, what are you doing? Get behind me, Satan. You've begun to mind the things of men, not the things of God. How is it that you've fallen so quickly? Where is your faith? Now, what I am suggesting is that when the believer who is spiritually minded begins to mind the things of men, he ought to be rebuked and he ought to do so himself. He ought to realize the contradiction and the tragedy that he is made alive in the spirit. He's walking by the spirit. He's being led by the spirit. And yet his thoughts are dragging in the dust. But then as a closing thought, listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 12. As uh, what is in many ways the first exhortation of the whole book. He says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, there Paul is saying that this is a continual activity, that the mind is in a constant process of renewal and that the believer is taking part in this. Yes, it is true that the believer's mind has been renewed, but it is also true to say, and this is in many ways the essence of the life of the believer's sanctification, that it is being renewed all the time, more and more. Otherwise, Paul says, our minds as believers will be conformed to the sinful world. Our minds will be full of the things of men, not the things of God. Why? Not so much that we forgot about our conversion, although that's part of it, but because we've stopped seeking the things of God. We have short-circuited the process of renewal. Well, how do you cultivate a process of renewal? My answer is, read Owen. Or to summarize Owen, simply put, you must cultivate this new faculty that God has given you. You must cultivate the spiritual mind. You must seek to grow always in your capacity for spiritual thoughts. You must, uh, to use the language of uh, the old Puritans, you must take time to be holy. You must set your minds in a disciplined and determined way on spiritual objects and spiritual things. And why must you do so? Well, and I should say before I answer why, it is just as you do so that you will find that you are growing in your capacity day by day. But the reason you should do so is this. 
Because as Paul says, to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can it be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But if I could just add to Paul, thank God, those who are in the Spirit and who mind the Spirit can and do. Amen. And let us come now to the table. Well, I think it would be fitting to read First uh, Corinthians chapter 11, given the fact that we've been in First Corinthians already throughout this sermon. And then maybe ask ourselves what the spiritual mind might mind uh, at, at the table of the Lord's Supper. Uh, the, the Apostle Paul says this, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. I'll just stop there. I I, I know I I typically finish that reading, but uh, I think I think we could just focus on the thought of examining himself. What is it that we are examining about ourselves as we come to the table? Well, Paul is talking about those who come in an unworthy manner and those who come in an uh, a worthy manner. He is not saying that some people are worthy and some people are unworthy. If we if we were to state it like that, we'd say everybody's unworthy. But he's saying that some people come in a worthy manner and other people come in an unworthy manner, which tells me that he's not just distinguishing between believers and unbelievers, but that he's even distinguishing between believers. He's saying that the unbeliever is excluded by definition because he is incapable of discerning the body and blood of Christ. But there is, uh, and this is certainly what was true in Corinth, uh, in Corinth there, there is a, a, the possibility that even the believer would not mind the things of God as the things of God were put before him. That he would be setting his mind on the things of men. That's exactly what the Corinthians were doing. They weren't discerning the Lord's body at the table. They were only filling their bellies. Uh, and, 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 and I think it's a great help that you can't do that from a little piece of bread and a little cup of wine. It's not possible. But it is certainly possible that you would view this entire transaction as utterly carnal, utterly fleshly. And you would say, what is there in this for me? Well, that's unbelief. That is to despise the table and to despise the Lord whom it represents. The attitude of faith, which is the attitude of uh, the spiritual person, is that, uh, is that Christ is in it. And that I comprehend that he is in it by faith after a spiritual fashion. I'm not suggesting that his body and blood are present here. That's the Roman Catholic heresy. I am suggesting that Christ has connected this little piece of bread and this little cup of wine to his very person. And that we are to comprehend that ourselves by faith. I am putting before you a great mystery. I still don't comprehend it. But I know uh, that Christ bids me and he bids you to the table to partake of himself. And to grow in faith. In other words, to exercise now the spiritual mind renewed after the image of Christ. And if you have such a mind and if you have such a faithful, then I say, 
I say come. But with those words, let us pray uh, together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift of the table. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you draw an intimate connection between the bread. You say, this is my body and the, and the cup. You say, this is my blood. Not as though to suggest we're eating your body or we're drinking your blood physically, but by faith we are. Just in the way you say in John 6, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood, whoever does not has no life in him, but he who does will live forevermore. You are calling us as spiritual persons to exercise a spiritual insight and to realize that here indeed is a spiritual truth for spiritual persons. That Christ by faith is in the sacrament and and we are meant to discern that we are meant to understand that insofar as we are able and to partake by faith. God enable us to do so and enable us to receive the benefit from doing so we ask in Jesus name. Amen.